1: Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision.
2: Our special guest today, who is a Christian expert on Islam, says Muslims encounter the world, their attitudes towards non-Muslims, they're significantly shaped in a different way. They're shaped by the impressions that they acquired from their earlier encounters with the Islamic sacred texts and through their family situations, through schools and mosques, where negative stereotyping abounds. And yes, the negative stereotyping includes Christians. A conversation today around how Christians look into Islam from the outside. And so we are going to open our talkback lines. You might like to join in our conversation. You'll be able to join with our talkback conversation, but you can also check out what others are saying and thinking on our Facebook post today, which has a poll. There's a question there that you're being asked. Would you ban the burqa? but make face masks mandatory to protect from COVID-19? Well, that question has a particular context, and it relates better to perhaps a European nation than it does to Australia right now. But the context is, of course, uh, how we as Christians will make sense of issues around Islam. But in France, where they've had 26,000 plus people who've died from COVID-19, They are now mandating face masks to be worn by all citizens during the coronavirus pandemic. But that law is opposite to one that controversially says there's a ban on Islamic face covering. The French government banned burqas and niqabs in public some time back and now face masks are being made mandatory. So there's an interesting Contradiction there, isn't there? Well, we'll talk through some of that, but we're going to be talking through issues about how we relate and things we need to be more thoughtful about when it comes to the relationships that we might build with people who are of Islamic faith. Our special guest today is Professor Peter Riddell, a Senior Research Fellow with the Australian College of Theology as well as Professorial Research Fellow with the University of London. And uh, Peter, a special welcome along to 2020. Good morning. Thank you, Neil, and it's good to be back. Peter, it is an interesting... We'll get you on the Facebook question later. We'll give will uh, give listeners an opportunity to respond there before we come back to that. Uh, that question, uh, would you ban the burqa to make face masks be mandatory to protect from COVID-19? What we want to talk about is this very different... Uh, uh, grouping uh, Islamic people and how we might relate as Christians. Uh, we often think as Christianity, we're very diverse, lots of different denominations and such things, but Islam is just as diverse as we are, aren't they?
0: Well, yes, it's, it certainly is, um, both in terms of its, its long history of 1,400 years, but also in terms of, you know, horizontally today, um, Muslims come in different sectarian groups, uh, they come in different geographical groups, linguistic groups, so indeed Muslims are extremely diverse um, and so when we think about Islam, we need to think about Islam as a religion, as a sort of religious system, theological system with its books and then we need to talk about the Muslim people, what they do with those, those books and that's where you end up with lots of different interpretations and different groups. <laughs>
2: I mentioned in the introduction the idea of a negative stereotyping and uh, Islamic people who are particularly focused on a negative stereotyping for Christians. And I think that includes also Jews and really I think it extends to everyone who's non-Muslim. But, uh, but taking the Christian context here, this negative stereotyping, uh, that's pretty significant and very pronounced in Islam. Yes,
0: and I think this is where um, it is important to make that distinction that I, I just mentioned in my earlier comment, and that is that um, the, the, the foundational texts, I suppose the ingredients, the, the, the books uh, of Islam, the sacred texts, the Quran and other book, uh, books and texts that surround it, they contain these images that create a kind of us and them division in the world. Um, uh, Muslims and non-Muslims, and so the books. Um, if if Muslims grow up uh, and they have uh, very close training on their books, it's easy for for them to pick up pick up negative views of others of non-Muslims, and that that then becomes a problem when we turn to the people of Islam. Some people of Islam who take those images that they've got from their books in their younger years uh, and they project them into their their sort of engagement with the world today, they can
2: end up with very negative views of non-Muslims. And we
0: see that, of course, in uh, in some of the problems around the
1: world today. Of
2: course, we all grow up in a certain environment, don't we? We are all shaped by the culture and the traditions that we grow up in. And uh, for Muslims, growing up in an islamic society their thinking is rather different to ours we like to think that everybody thinks the same way we do but this is part of the challenge isn't it to be able to understand a way another person might think so that we can better communicate or be relational or even communicate our message to that side there's a challenge there isn't there
0: there is a challenge there neil and um, of course if uh, if People, uh, you know, if Muslims live in societies that are sort of entirely Muslim or almost entirely Muslim, such as, for example, Pakistan or Afghanistan or Mauritania uh, or or Turkey, uh, where you get uh, over 90% of the local population is Muslim only, then it's easy for those Muslims to have views of others that are shaped by their texts and that end up being quite negative. On the other hand... When you get Muslims um, um, you know, in pluralist kinds of situations, for example, Muslim minorities in the West, then you hope that a process of integration and a softer view of others will come about. And it does with many Muslims. I've got many Muslim friends who are, who are open, very friendly. They have a very good view of, of non-Muslims. But uh, the concern is especially those who come from entirely Muslim locations uh, or live in ghettos in the West and uh, don't go outside those ghettos very much.
2: Peter, the idea of politics and religion, we often will think that somehow or other there is a differentiation between our religious faith and politics, uh, but in Islam there's no differentiation at all. It's like uh, it's uh, my way or the highway in some sense here. Uh, give us some insights that you understand about the way that typically Muslims think politically uh, because they're not used to necessarily our democratic traditions that we have in the West.
0: Well, yes, and it relates to a, um, a difference in the history of the two faiths uh, within our, our Christian history. Of course, we came from a period going way back to the time of the Roman Empire we, when when the Roman Empire embraced Christianity. There was a period when uh, Christianity shaped not only the religious beliefs and, and, and activities of people, but the whole life, the total package. Um, but, uh, you know, with the Reformation, um, we set that aside and uh, we there was a separation of the sacred and the secular. And um, today, of course, uh, religious faith is very important to Christians, but we also can look outside that in other aspects of our life. Um, In the history of Islam on the other hand um, Islam has always been presented and it's always presented itself as the total package so it's a faith for Friday uh, for their Friday worship, it's uh, got a legal system, Islamic law is is quite active in the world today and has For 1400 years, Uh, we hear of Islamic banking and finance. So it's an economic system. Uh, It's a system of social organisation. So Muslims are brought up to see their faith as the whole, as the blueprint for life, in a sense. Um, A very different history, and it creates a very different perspective on the world today. And therefore, Muslims don't always understand how how Westerners uh, or Christians can separate. you know, their faith from other parts of life.
2: And, of course, in Christianity, we will often pedestalise individual people and we'll follow them and, uh, you know, Paul the Apostle, uh, you know, and uh, some follow Paul, some follow Apollos. Uh, There's a certain sense in which uh, this has been a part of Christian tradition too, that we sort of follow individuals. Ultimately, as Christian believers, we want to follow the only one who really deserves to be followed uh, perfectly, and that, of course, is Jesus Christ. Uh, He's the one who is, uh, you know, we are the ones who we say we follow him, but there's this whole instance that happens in Islam, there's often a scholarly person or a leader that uh, that people follow to the letter of the law. Uh, what are your insights here in how Muslims follow particular people?
0: Yes, well, it's been uh, it's been very evident in in, in the world uh, in recent times, hasn't it? Um, of course. Uh, For Muslims, the ultimate model is Muhammad, but Muhammad's long gone, of course. Muslims believe that he died in 632 AD. AD. So since that time, since his death, there have been a series of leaders down the centuries um, and uh, right up to the present day. And often these leaders uh, lead Muslim groups astray into all kinds of... uh, You know, undesirable activities and undesirable attitudes often drawing on some of those ingredients in the sacred texts I mentioned at the beginning. So in the modern day, of course, we're aware of the Al-Qaeda group. We're aware of the late Osama bin Laden and how he he led a group of Muslims uh, into horrendous uh, activities. Uh, We're aware of the ISIS group and how they followed their leader, Abu Bakr al-Qadradi. Um, so yes, uh, and now often those kinds of Muslim leaders, uh, they're, they're effectively warlords and that's what we're seeing in Afghanistan, uh, in parts of the Middle East under ISIS and so forth.
2: And when you say names like Osama bin Laden or Baghdadi, I mean, what we're talking about here and the way we classify them, and I think rightly so, as terrorists, and, uh, but these, as you're saying, are spiritual leaders within Islam. I'm sure there are people are uh, within Islam who'll say uh, you know but uh, but, oh, but Islam is an, a religion of peace and and uh, we don't really follow those leaders. But I wonder whether you've got any insight into uh, the numbers or the way that Islam does lean towards uh, particular leaders and 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 what that is uh, you know founded upon of course coming back to their scriptures. Yes,
0: um we, oh, one of the great questions is how do you, you know, in effect slice up the Muslim cake how do you categorize Muslims um, I see that as a kind of uh, spectrum and this is based on research that I've done over a general really 25 years effectively um, a kind of spectrum where at one end you get uh, a, a, an attitude that is very much Fundamentalist, if you wish, based on a literal understanding of the texts, based on a, a fairly hardline view of non Muslims. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, you get a much more modern, open attitude among some muslims and then you get the masses in the middle and you know I've just described three groups and really I see uh, what's happening in the islamic world today and has been happening for quite some time is a struggle between the two ends of the spectrum so you have fundamentalist hardline groups of muslims uh, competing with much more modern thinking muslims at the other end and they they're involved in a tug of war trying to pull the masses in their direction that's why we see so much conflict. In the Muslim world today, and you see the uprisings of groups like ISIS, and, and then you see them being condemned by other kinds of Muslims. So, so I would, uh, in terms of proportions, I'd probably say we're talking, you know, 10 to 15 percent at, at each end, and maybe 70 to 75 percent of the masses in the middle, and they're the focus of the tug of war.
2: Uh, So what about the Muslim who lives next door? And uh, you said, you know, you've got lots of Muslim friends and I can identify uh, some people who are within my circle who would uh, have uh, that sort of leaning uh, too as well. Uh, But for uh, listeners today, uh, listening in, thinking, you know, I've got Muslim neighbours, I wonder whether they might be on one end of a spectrum that is, you know, more liberal, another end that is extreme, Or are they in that, as you say, that 75% somewhere in the middle? I mean, I wonder whether you can make any distinctions. Are there things that, you know, if we're talking about how we relate to people of Islamic faith today, is there any signs that we should look for that might indicate that they are one way or another?
0: You know, I think, um, as with anybody, one of the first signs one should look for is a sense of openness, a sense of friendliness, a sense of neighborliness. Um, And if if one senses that, you know, a genuine, sincere sense of openness and friendliness, then that probably tells you that uh, your Muslim neighbor or your Muslim work colleague is, is not at the extreme Um, you know hard line end of the spectrum Um, and of course in terms of numbers you're more likely to encounter that kind of Muslim but uh, yeah initial impressions will often be a very good uh, yardstick for uh, to let you know what kind of Muslim you're dealing with.
2: I can't help but think uh, you know if we're talking percentages at either end of a spectrum and uh, you mentioned 15 percent uh, I remember uh, some time back, uh, somebody uh, giving numbers to those sorts of percentages. And uh, with the number of Muslims that there are in the world, if there were 15% who are on the extreme end, that means uh, tens or hundreds of millions of people who might be on the extreme end. I, I mean, uh, I-, I guess you've got to be careful when you actually do uh, sort of speculate with percentages, but there are an awful lot of people, Muslims in the world, who actually do lean towards the more extreme end. Is that the case? Well, yes,
0: and especially in uh, locations where they have no alternatives, where they don't know what the uh, other options are. Now, that may well be in communities in uh, majority Muslim countries, uh, less educated Muslim communities that are very closed, or it might be sometimes in the West where you have very closed ghettos of communities as well. And, of course, we saw we saw the signs of these kinds of uh, Muslims coming to the fore during the ISIS years when young men and young women flocked to join ISIS from all over the world, including from within Australia and France and Germany and the United States and Britain and so forth. Um, so, yes, uh, with the numbers we're talking about, uh, extremists, um, they're not a small in number. Um, but, of course, we're reassured to some extent by the fact that Um, You know, other kinds of Muslims uh, have combated them and most of the fighting against ISIS was done by Muslims. So
2: it's very much an intra-Muslim struggle that's going on. Well, we're in the centre of our conversation today and if you're just joining us, uh, we're talking about Muslims and how Christians uh, relate to people of Islamic faith. And as Peter Riddell has just said, when there's no other option to understand what the alternatives are, people can tend to lean to one of the extremes. So what is it, that relationship that we might have as Christian believers uh, with people who are Muslims in our community, uh, to be able to give some insight into the alternative? Because as Christians, as we've heard, Christians are often negatively stereotyped within Islam. That means they're told things about Christianity that aren't true. So if those things become clearer in the mind of that Muslim person, then something can change. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a
1: biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision.
2: Our special guest this hour is Professor Peter Riddell, a Senior Research Fellow with the Australian College of Theology as well as Professorial Research Fellow with the University of London. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. You can join in our conversation today. You might have a question. You might have a comment. You might even like to disagree. You can. 1-800-316-316. Uh, Peter, let's take a call. Let's hear from Jason in Victoria. Jason, welcome along.
1: Good morning, Peter, and good morning, Neil.
2: Morning, Jason. What are your thoughts?
1: We we can relate to all our neighbours, no matter who they are, no matter what religion they are. We need to learn. We need to realise. As Mandita tells us in her song, Bleed the Same, we all bleed the same. Hmm.
2: Uh, We need to learn to relate to our neighbours no matter where they come from. That's an interesting and more broader perspective we're focusing in on if you've got a Muslim neighbour here. But Peter, what are your thoughts for Jason?
0: Oh, look, it's a, it's a general principle, and I think it's very true. Um, absolutely, we, um, we, we shouldn't live in, in houses with walls and not get to know our neighbours. Uh, we need to relate to them, um, whether they are of another religious faith or indeed of no religious faith. Indeed, So neighbourly relations is a very important part of building good community, and I, I, I agree. <laughs>
2: Jason, thank you so much for your call. one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen 316 316 to join in our conversation. Peter, let's come back to some of this negative stereotyping. And uh, Christians are right there in the middle of that negative stereotyping. From what I understand, that negative stereotyping is even reinforced uh, when a Muslim has their daily prayers and uh, we'll know and we'll have seen those images on TV uh, where you've got Muslims who are uh, you know kneeling down on the floor on a mat and uh, facing Mecca and uh, they have their prayers five times a day but but there's even a reinforcing of the negative stereotyping in those prayers as I understand it what are your thoughts here
0: well one of the issues is that there is one particular chapter of the Quran the opening chapter the first chapter actually Includes a verse which refers to uh, God favoring some, uh, being angry with others, or being wrathful with others, and yet others having gone astray. So three groups, God favouring some, God being wrathful with some, and uh, some others having gone astray. Now, uh, that prayer is pronounced by Muslims in their daily prayers five times a day, uh, if, if they're observant. And um, in order to understand what that means, if you go to the commentaries on on, on that those particular verses, the most common interpretation in the commentators, which, of course, the teachers and the imams pick up, is that God favours the Muslims, God is wrathful with the Jews and Christians have gone astray now it doesn't mean that every time they say their prayers in the mosque the imam is reminding them of what it means but this is where in the early years of having you know, studied Quran and so forth Muslims can easily pick up those kinds of attitudes and that's a concern.
2: Okay, let's come back to this question that I'm asking on Facebook today. And uh, when I thought, uh, let's post something that is controversial, but perhaps doesn't have a right or wrong answer. The question is, would you ban the burqa, but make face masks be mandatory to protect from COVID-19? And it's not really our circumstance in Australia where we haven't lost... Uh, thousands of people to uh, COVID-19, but it is the case in France that they're grappling with this question. And I'm not surprised that uh, some responses, uh, like, uh, like Crystal, who said... Um, I feel like a question like this is a division starter. Uh, why even post such a poll? Well, uh, Crystal, it is the idea of getting us all thinking about the issues here, and I wonder whether Peter, you've got any thoughts here. Uh, um, would you ban the burqa but make face masks be mandatory to protect from COVID nineteen? Uh, the French are yeah. dealing with that. It's a, it's a tough one, isn't it? Well, I mean, I think it's good that you, I think
0: it's good that you have put the question out there because it's the kind of um, equivalence, I think a simplistic equivalence that 's very common um, it 's based on a what uh, 's a faulty premise it 's based on the idea on this idea that a burqa covers a woman 's face a face mask covers a woman 's face, therefore they do the same thing, therefore we need to have the same policy and that's that 's just plainly wrong and actually it 's lazy thinking because the burqa is related to a whole set of issues that have to do with community integration, togetherness, women's rights. The fourth mask is concerned with coronavirus and specific health issues. Totally different kinds of issues. And so, to to even uh, you know to even be concerned by the question, as many in, French, in France are, I think, is a is a distraction and it, it shows lazy thinking. What people need to do in France is identify the fact that there are very different issues underlying each uh, the, the two things, the burqa and the face mask, and deal with them separately. Uh,
2: Peter, uh, any more we can talk about so far as this idea of banning the burqa? Uh, we've got some people who've been uh, responding on our Facebook page, uh, but if we're talking about the government banning the burqa but mandating the idea of face masks, that is a really big contradiction, isn't it?
0: Well, uh, 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 On face value, it it does appear to be a contradiction. Um, I I think personally that uh, that it's a false uh, comparison, to be honest, and therefore a consistent policy across both is not necessary um, because the banning of the burqa raises a whole set of issues which are very different to the set of issues that relate to wearing face masks, masks during the coronavirus crisis. Um, I mean, The banning of the burqa has been in place in France <coughs> since I think it was 2011 it was brought in and uh, there were arguments for and against within the Islamic community. Some Muslims supported the banning of the burqa, some Muslims opposed the banning of the burqa. Equally in the non-Muslim community, some were supportive of the legislation, some opposed it. And um, really the, the arguments uh, that supported banning of the burqa or based on issues such as um, we live in a society where facial recognition is necessary such as in law courts, uh, engagement with police, uh, banks and so forth and therefore to allow one segment of the community not to do that breaks down that that important role of facial recognition. Um, and also there were, you know, uh, those who supported the banning of the burqa, they argued that um, it was imposing sexist values on some Muslim women who would not otherwise ban the burqa. Um, I mean, I, 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 what I would briefly say is that uh, it, it, it's ironic in a sense that the, in the West, we went through a process in the second half of the 20th century where we broke down barriers of segregation in, through the US civil rights movement, um, through in South Africa, through apartheid. We broke down segregation in favour of integration, that's what civil rights was all about and breaking down apartheid, and yet um, those who want to allow the burqa effectively allowing a re, a re a reemergence of a kind of segregation and I think it's very unhealthy for communities.
2: And it's while we're talking about how we as Christian believers understand people who've been raised in the Islamic faith, uh, it does appear that people who are in government making decisions about the life of a nation are ignorant about those things that have shaped people who've been raised in Islamic faith and so therefore you get people who are who are making decisions that uh, that are not even uh, consistent with, as you say, things like a civil rights movement and equ- equality across uh, different uh, nationalities. That's, that's pretty significant, isn't it?
0: It is, really. And, of course, what uh, the, the dominant uh, mindset among those who oppose uh, the banning of the burqa is, is liberal values of freedom of speech and uh, freedom of movement um, and so forth. But... Uh, they're not thinking through the history that uh, if, if, if freedom of speech is taken to an extreme case, you will inevitably re-establish segregated communities, such as you had in the south of the US, such as you had in South Africa. And one of the risks of extreme multiculturalism is that it does exactly that. So, um, our policymakers need to think that through.
2: Wow, that's very, very deep and uh, deserving of a whole lot more thought and uh, to unpack that. But hey, we've got some more calls to take. Why don't we take a call from Michael, who's in Eight Mile Plains in Queensland? Michael, welcome along. Welcome along. Hello, Michael. What are your thoughts? You might need to turn your radio down. Oh, still too loud. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. What are your thoughts, Michael? I just think that with things like this, we need to
1: meet halfway, but not halfway as in letting things happen that are wrong. Like with the burqa, it could be modified as, for example, when you go to a petrol station, you have to take off your hat and that there but you'd be able to wear it in other places but not totally expand it altogether because it's to them it's a symbol of
2: religion and connection with their God. And good insight there. And uh, what you're saying is there should be some sort of compromise along the way, but uh, there's a symbolism in there. Uh, Peter, your thoughts for Michael? Um, Well, of course, in in France,
0: the burqa is not banned completely. Um, Muslim women are free to wear the burqa Uh, in family situations. They're free to wear wear it at home. They're free to wear it when they're visiting friends. So it's limited banning in specific circumstances in public areas. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, it, 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 the second thing is um, the question of it being a symbol of, of Islamic faith. Well, Muslims debate that, and that's where you, you see Muslims, have, there are some Muslims who are in favour of wearing the burqa, there are some Muslims who are strongly in favour of banning the burqa, including many Muslim women. Um, so many Muslims don't see it as a as a, as a necessary symbol of their faith. Uh, they see it as an imposition and, a, and a, an imposition which which really um, constrains um, uh, women's movement and women's participation in society.
2: Michael from Eight Mile Plains, thank you so much for your call. Let's take another call. William is on the line in Queensland. Hi, William. Welcome.
1: G'day. Thanks very much for taking the call. Look, um, the problem we've got suffering here is sense and sensibility is a lack of it. There has to be a practical application of having a mask and there is religious people have it requiring to practice their, their religion. However, the problem is they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater and they are not being practical. There is a practical application of using a mask for medical reasons. But for religious reasons, it's it's like saying... I have to have a cross on me to be Christian. You don't need a cross to be Christian. Christianity is of the heart, not of the outward appearance. Um, the point is, it's the same with the burqa. You can be Muslim all you like, but outside in the public, you have to be, a, um, what would you say, ethically um, with the all the other people. You cannot just practice one seg- segment of your religion, which is... Um, which takes advantage of um, uh, not being open and honest, and all the rest of it, and and you just need to be able to practice sense and sensibility. Uh,
2: good thoughts, William. Uh, what are your responses there, Peter? Yes, uh, look, I think uh, I think uh,
0: William uh, William's comments are very pertinent. Actually, I mean, at the end of the day. Um, uh, we we have freedom within our own homes, within our families, to to articulate and to be who we are, to be our distinctive selves, to follow particular customs and so forth. But in terms of being out in the general community, it is about building a sense sort of community, community cohesion, and therefore I I understand the French policy and that it's designed to prevent one group. It's not even one group. It's one part of one group. Dressing in such a way that they seem to be making a statement of segregation and and non-participation. And uh, yeah, I I think that's, that's the essence of William's comment and I
1: agree with that.
2: Okay, thank you so much to William for your call. You can call us on 1-800-316-316 to join in our Talkback conversation. Uh, You can also respond to that question on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Vision Radio. At the moment, 41% are saying yes and 59% are saying no uh, to our question. But let's come back to the essence of our conversation today, which is not really to be divisive. In fact, I would say, Peter, the essence of our conversation today is how do we actually become more relational? And uh, one of the things I know that you recommend is the idea of avoiding stereotypes. Now, we've talked about the way that Muslims stereotype us, and uh, we can be guilty of stereotyping them. But what are your thoughts around this idea of avoiding stereotyping Muslims? Well
0: uh I mean it gets down to one's exposure and, and I suppose the information that we have at hand um, uh, stereotypes usually arise when uh, because of a lack of information now Muslims who tend to stereotype Christians are often those Muslims who don't know Christians who don't know the human story the the human face of Christians they just go from a, a book uh, you know a, a, Presentation in the Quran. Um, And likewise, on our part, you know, if we don't know any Muslims or if we know nothing about Islam, then it's easy to stereotype. And one can even be forgiven for it because, you know, you you form opinions based on the information that you have at hand. So I think it's important for for us to have these kinds of conversations, for radio radio stations to offer these kinds of discussions so that people become better informed. Um, Muslims about Christians and Christians about Muslims. And that way, stereotyping becomes less likely.
2: Let's talk in a bigger dimension here. And uh, oftentimes we'll see, and, uh, you know, I'm thinking of Iraq. uh, That was sort of, uh, I don't know where you might have your own perspectives, looks uh, to be a sort of a failed experiment of trying to bring about a democratic government in Iraq after the Iraq war. But this idea that Christians ought to support efforts by Western governments uh, trying to establish democratic political systems in Muslim countries uh, is there value in that or or is it something you would ignore and uh, what are your thoughts here Peter? Yes Iraq is an interesting case
0: isn't it because look at the end of the day setting aside Iraq for a moment <laughs> and I'll come back to that excuse me um, the, the choice between a liberal democratic system where people have their cho- choice available to them to, to, to vote to Follow, support the party and the politicians that they want, compared with an ideological system where uh, something is imposed from the top, democracy wins hands down every day. So I think supporting democracy as the best of a bunch of imperfect political systems is the way to go. Iraq is a particular case, it's a particular problem, because... As you say, the the Iraqi experiment uh, as a democratic state has failed recently but it's actually failed since Iraq gained independence in 1932 and part of the problem was um, Iraq was created uh, as a nation of three main groups which have been in conflict with each other for centuries. So to create a nation and hope it would become a democratic sort of utopia Uh, paradise overnight was a bit bit short-sighted and I think one of the questions that needs to be asked of Iraq is is the state viable? Would it be better to be you know, to have some kind of Kurdish presence there for example which the Kurds would like Um, Shiites, Sunnis, putting them all together is a bit of a recipe for disaster I think
2: Uh, I want to ask you about a church response in just a few moments but let's take a call or two, let's hear from Graham in Queensland. Hi Graham, welcome How are you doing? Very well, Graham. What are your thoughts? I'll just share
3: very briefly with you because I'm driving. My wife, whom I've married for the last 36 years, comes from an Islamic background, and there are 32 members of her family who are still in Islam, and only three have come to Christ. So I've had the opportunity to study Islam very, very deeply because I'm. Very concerned for my wife's family that they all come to Christ. One by one, they are coming very slowly. Islam is a religious political ideology, and their founder Muhammad has instructed them regarding the bur- burqa. There is a reason for it, and unless we know the reason for it, talking about the burqa and the mask isn't compatible. Doesn't doesn't go. As Peter was rightly saying, Islam is an ideology which is a philosophy, religious, political, social, it's total control of the adherent. So probably some time later, I'm happy to share my thoughts on Islam. A person who follows Islam is not a Muslim. He is a Mohammedan. Muslim, the, Muslim is an Arabic word which means true worshipper. If you are a true worshipper of Christ, you're a Muslim. One who follows Islam has two things, a book and a prophet, the Quran and Muhammad. One who follows Christ is a Christian. He has a book, the holy Bible, and the prophet, his saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Graham,
2: Graham, you're making some great know. points there, But uh, and there's plenty to pick up on already in the things that you've shared. But uh, let's come back to Peter. Peter Riddell, your thoughts for Graham from Queensland?
0: Yes. Well, look, thank you, Graeme, for those comments. There's a lot in there and, and uh, we don't have time to, to deal with every single issue you've raised. But um, I mean, one thing I do notice uh, is that you, you mentioned that you've got uh, 30, uh, 32 extended family members, um, most of whom are Muslim. And it's that kind of uh, personal connection with Muslim people that I think is important as we through these issues so that when we look at the theological system of Islam and about Muhammad and about the Quran, we we can come to understand that from study, but we also need the kind of engagement with the people of Islam as you've got. It's it's very beneficial. So thanks for that feedback. That was very helpful.
2: Uh, Thank you, Graham. And uh, just before I let Graham go, one of the issues that he raised is the issue of control because if we talk about winning people from an Islamic faith to Christianity, uh, control is not something that we think of. We think of freedom from control when we think of our Christianity. I wonder whether you've got any thoughts around this, uh, Peter, because uh, obviously as Graham, uh, you know, winning those family members to Christ, and he says there's, a, there's three, I think he said, out of the 32, and, uh, and he says uh, they're slowly coming to Christ. And so this is really... Uh, for Graham, this conversation today and this idea of how do we relate to our Muslim neighbours so that they will, uh, in a sense here, be uh, less stereotyping of us in a negative way and understanding the truth so that they ultimately might be free. Uh, What are your thoughts here around the issues of control?
0: Yes, well, um, this brings us again back to the problems in the books um, because a key reason that Muslims... um, uh, find it so difficult to leave the faith of Islam is the punishments that they're taught w- will happen to them if they do renounce Islam. I mean, it's very clear in the Islamic legal texts, for example, or it's also very clear in the Hadith, the second sacred sources, where Muslims are effectively told that, uh, you know, if they leave Islam, they will burn in hellfire and they can be punished in this world by, by death. So that is a great disincentive for Muslims to... Um, to, you know, not not to leave Islam. Now, of course, um, the Christian message is very different. And so is the message of, of freedom and freedom of speech and freedom of religious choice in the West as well. And um, I think we have to take advantage of Muslims being in our countries to both remind them and to ensure that they, are, they have full access to the freedoms of the West, the freedom of choice, because some Muslims in closed communities don't. But we also have to share the the, the spiritual freedom that's offered by Christianity, that we're not in this faith because we're terrified of leaving it. We're in this faith out of choice because it's empowering and liberating. And so I would wish Graham well as as he continues to interact with his family members.
2: Graham, thank you so much for your call. And uh, we are going to have to put a a line under calls now because we've run out of time. It's amazing how little time we've got when we get into a really great conversation like this with Peter Riddell. Uh, Peter, uh, just great getting your insights today and uh, don't want to go uh, let you go yet because I did want to mention uh, that there is a church dimension here and uh, the encouragement for us in our local churches and through our denominations about how they might be involved in a process of of connecting relationally and monitoring and applying the sort of uh, pressure that leads towards freedom. I wonder whether you've just, as we close things out, uh, some thoughts here on on where you think the church ought to be going in that dimension of having some uh, influence here. Well, I
0: think it's important for churches that that are located in areas where there are Muslims uh, living, and of course that's increasingly the case in Australia, it's important for churches to to connect with Muslims. Now, that can be through church individuals making the connections through with neighbours or with work colleagues or it can be churches as institutions connecting with Muslim institutions. So if there's a, a mosque down the road then it's good for churches to, to make the connection and to get to know, to, to, to share to have, have experiences of sharing and friendship and hospitality and so forth um, but in the process those who are leading that uh, are from the Christian side, they need to not go into it blind, but they need to do some study, they need to do reading, they need to be listening to these kinds of programs to inform themselves before they, before they go into the engagement. So the- They have the right equipment, the right tools. They know the right answers if they're asked difficult questions and so forth. But it is important for Christians to engage with Muslims in all different kinds of circumstances, both individuals and the institutions.
2: Well, Peter Riddell, there are going to be listeners who are going to say, how can I connect with Peter Riddell? Uh, Where is the best place for people to find articles on the sorts of things we're talking about today or uh, books that you might have written over the years. Uh, where's the best place to connect these days?
0: Oh, look, um, if people simply Google my name, um, uh, put it between quotes, then uh, I have quite a lot of stuff on the internet, so that would bring up a lot of stuff if they follow on from there uh, Some links will connect with other links, and there's a lot of stuff on there, both academic, longer writings, articles, books, but also shorter writings, journalist articles as well.
2: Well, Peter, great insights today, and uh, wonderful to be able to come around a clear presentation of what it is that we ought to be looking for as we look in from the outside into Islamic faith, and to be able to make an assessment of why they're negatively stereotyping us so that we then might be able to be more relational, and ultimately introduce them to the freedom that there is in Christ. Uh, just a great insight once again today. Peter Riddell, who's the who's a senior research fellow with the Australian College of Theology as well as Professorial Research Fellow with the University of London. And as Peter said, Google Peter Riddell, R-I-double-D-E-double-L, and you'll come up with all sorts of articles and books and insights into how you might better relate to things that are happening in the Islamic community from a Christian perspective. Peter, great getting your insights. Thanks for being with us once again today on Twenty Twenty. And thank you for having me, Neil.